I'm speaking with Oliver Curry from the University of Ljubljana. His work explores multilingualism, language diversity, and the mechanisms of language shift. Today he's sharing his perspective on the ways that his work can reduce present-day conflict in Europe. Hi Oliver, it's great to be talking with you today. Hello Chris, uh, great to be here. Would you mind telling us about yourself? Yes, um, my name is Oliver Curry. I'm assistant professor in the English departments, Faculty of Arts, University of Ljubljana. I teach translation from Slovene to English. My research interests are in three main fields, historical linguistics, social linguistics, and translation studies. I'm particularly interested in the history of minoritized languages, such as the Celtic languages today. Minoritized languages are languages which are in close, close contact with and have a subordinate status to dominant languages, such as Welsh in relation to English, Irish in relation to English, or Breton in relation to French. I research historical contacts between minoritized languages and dominant languages, and how this contact affects the development of minoritized languages and their literatures. One aspect of this history which tends to be overlooked today, in particular by speakers of uh, the majority dominant languages, is that minority lang languages were not always, didn't always have a subordinate status in the history and have in many cases very rich uh, literatures and, and cultures of their own. Another aspect is the fact that because of this subordinate status, because they're minority status, minoritized languages like the Celtic languages are in fact threatened, endangered. Their traditional communities have become fully bilingual in their native language and the dominant language, so English in the case of Wales and Ireland and, Sc and Scottish Gaelic. And over time, the populations have been shifting to the dominant language, that is they both cease to transmit their ancestral language to their children and also stopped using the language. And a consequence of this shift is, that, is ultimately the death, whether in certain communities or if it goes to its very end, logical conclusion, complete extinction of these languages, which results in a loss of linguistic diversity. And when you use these terms dominance and subordinates, yes. uh, in what sense is one language dominant uh, and another subordinate? So dominance can be realized on many levels, in particular political dominance. So the speakers of the dominant language will have typically political dominance over the speakers of the subordinated language, minoritized language. So this could be as a result of historical or present-day colonization. Wales, for example, had been a largely independent polity until the Middle Ages. The English Kingdom formally annexed Wales uh, in the 16th century. Before then, there had been a, co a conquest of Wales, and so the, the Welsh were no longer autonomous. It became part of the English Kingdom. English speakers had political do dominance. Welsh speakers, for example, were even barred from political office, administrative office, if they couldn't speak English. Uh, that's a kind of example of political dominance. There's also economic do dominance. So the communities speaking the dominant languages may be larger, typically larger communities have a more dominant economy. The communities speaking minorities languages tend to be dependent on the large economy to a greater extent. A further aspect of dominance is cultural dominance. So this is most evident today in, with mass media, digital media, where major languages like English predominate over minoritized languages. Even if a person speaks primarily at home uh, a minoritized language, if they speak Welsh, 
they would likely consume media in one form or another, predominantly in a major language. They'd be reading literature in English, newspapers primarily in English, television in English. And so this kind of dominance is felt on multiple levels. And we use the kind of the term minoritized languages to refer to language which find themselves in this subordinate position. It's fascinating. So there's a difference between uh, a majority-minority population versus a minoritized language, which has to do more with the relationships and the situations in which the language is used. Precisely. Is it typical in these kinds of situations that the speakers of the minoritized language will shift language? This is a very important question. What, first of all, what do we mean by shift? Because the ultimate phase of shift is when speakers of a minority's language stop speaking their native language. An intermediate stage will be bilingualism. Historically, uh, languages like the Celtic languages today, where the populations are fully bilingual, were not, were monolingual. So until the 19th century, to well into the 19th century, Wales was predominantly a monolingual, well-speaking nation. And then became, the population became bilingual and over time, and not, and not very long, in fact, over a few decades, uh, a large proportion of the population stopped using Welsh and shifted to monolingual English. The re a research question I'm interested in, and many other scholars are interested in is, under what circumstances and why does language shift take place when people stop speaking their mother tongue and adopt for some or all purposes, or in all spheres of use, a, a dominant language. It's key to understand this, not only because we're interested from an academic point of view, but also because it informs how we can attempt to preserve, to maintain linguistic diversity and ensure the survival of minoritized languages. And I know that you work in a number of languages and speech communities. Your work right now is focused on Welsh and the complexities of that situation. Yes. Could you talk about that sociolinguistic context, uh, context a bit more and, and some of the conflict that emerged in that space? Most of our research has looked at the period after um, the annexation of Wales by England. Uh, Wales became fully integrated into the English Kingdom. English was the only official language of Wales. So from this point on in particular, there was a risk for the survival of the, of the Welsh language. You can see already from this time, parts of the gentry, uh, the kind of Welsh upper class, adopting English, say using English in private correspondence, even amongst themselves, while the majority of the population remained monolingual Welsh. So a lot of my research um, has focused on a very important part of Welsh linguistic and cultural history, which is the translation of the Bible into Welsh, the first printed Bible, um, the first complete translation of 1588. And from this point on, despite the subordinate states of Welsh, Welsh was recognised as the, kind of the official language in worship. And this had a number of important consequences one of which it's boosted Welsh culture and Welsh language at a time when it could have been under threat. Say if English had become uh, the language of religion as actually happened uh, in Cornwall, which at that time there was still a significant though um, numerically small Cornish speaking population, then Welsh could have found itself undergoing shift much earlier than it did. 
And, and these, these different threads that you're bringing together of education, of provision of religious services, of changes in the economy, of mm -hmm. communication links, yes. these all come together under a model of verticalization that you're exploring in your research right now. Could you talk about that model yes. and, and how you're exploring that? Yes. So the verticalization model of language shift has been developed by uh, American scholars, uh, Joseph Sammons, Joshua Brown, uh, Benjamin Frey, amongst others. The core of this th uh, theory is that language shift is driven by a fundamental change in the structure and the organization of communities. On the one hand, communities can be autonomous with local control of institutions, so social networks, uh, the economy, whether it's agricultural, and these are, this is in the, in, in the theories termed horizontal organization. On the other hand, you can have a community uh, whose internal structures, organization, institutions, schools, religion, business, agriculture is controlled by the wider outside community. And the change from horizontal organization to vertical organization is termed verticalization. So this correlation between uh, verticalization, change of community structure, how a community relates to the outside world, whether it's autonomous or that becomes absorbed within it. And this is the, kind of the key factor. And now, you've tested this, this model that, that they provided in the context of Wales. Is that right? What I'm interested in is how, to what extent can this model be applied more generally? Now, I'm interested in scenarios where shift has taken place so it's comparable in the sense because you have the, the, this fundamental linguistic cultural change uh, which results in loss of linguistic diversity. But the geographical, cultural, historical, political situations are quite different because I'm looking at indigenous minoritized languages in Europe, not in us, I'm looking at over a longer period, say in the case of Wales from the 16th century to the 21st century. What I'm interested in is the questions, the very interesting questions which the verticalization model raises. If you get, they say, make quite a bold claim, which is if verticalization happens, shift follows. So this is a key question for maintenance and it's because of this, how this strong claim that I've been attracted to explore this verticalization theory. So in the current phase of my research, I'm interested in comparing the broad settings of cultural change and language shift in, say, Wales on the one hand. And what did you find? Did, did verticalization happen and well, did language shift what happen? I was, language shift has happened. Verticalization has happened to a certain extent. So the way uh, verticalization is currently formulated is quite, let's say, abbreviated terms. So if verticalization happens, shift follows. That's a very brief statement. So my main observation is that verticalization is a complex phenomenon. It happens, it can happen over a, an extended period of time, and it can happen to different degrees. This is something also acknowledged by the proponents of verticalization theory. And what you find in Wales, what you find in the Scottish Highlands and Islands where Gaelic is spoken, is you have varying degrees of verticalization. So this raises the question is how much verticalization is necessary for language shift. So the challenge for verticalization theory is 
how much is verticalization contributing, how much are other factors contributing. So we also should remember that Welsh language, like other languages, minoritized languages in Europe, have also undergone significant persecution. This has had an impact on the people, on the speakers. Um, this kind of produces a kind of trauma. Negative perception of language can uh, be a trigger to language shift and not necessarily immediately, could there could be a time lag. So this is an important element. On the other hand, there's resistance. There's kind of political nationalism, which has been associated with support for Welsh language. Um, is, is this why it's important to, to do this sort of work? Um, and, and more generally, why is it important that we understand verticalization uh, and, and the mechanisms behind language shift? The point of language planning in the case of minorities languages is to develop them enable them to be used in more spheres of life than if you did nothing, then English would just be used in all spheres of life, in education, in government, in, pol in politics. If there isn't a policy, say, for translation, bilingualism, then you'd only have the dominant language being used. So the goal is to ensure the use of the minoritized language. Now, in the case of minorities la languages, the, the problem is that if planning is not effective, say if there is a shift from the minoritized language to dominant language, say from English to Welsh, then the planning is ineffective. Um, and this shift could be just not using Welsh, choosing to use English instead, because Welsh speakers being bilingual have this option, may decide it's a kind of path of least resistance or they're proficient in English, they associate, they can speak English in more domains, and so they use English instead. Language planning should take account the risk of language shift because if it doesn't, then its point is not effective. So institutional support for minoritized languages like Welsh and Scottish Gaelic and planning is essential. It's important to have textbooks at school. It's important to implement bilingual education. It's also important to ensure or do everything that can be done to stop shift from happening or to minimize shift. See, so it sounds like we can't set good policies and procedures to protect minoritized languages without understanding how language shift happens and Precisely. ways we can avoid language shift. But also it sounds like we can't work in the present without understanding the historical context and the historical social contexts in which language shifts happen. Is that why your work is, is so important to understand all these things together? There are many, many scholars working on this. And I would say because it's studying and understanding shift is so critical to understanding the loss of linguistic diversity and also for maintaining linguistic diversity that all work on language shift is valuable in this sense, help us to understand what's going on. And in particular what I what hope the work I do in a, in, a, in a modest way can contribute just like those of others like the proponents of verticalization theory, people who, scholars who study present-day communities, whether it's Gaelic in Western Isles or Wales and Scotland, what this contrib contributes is by showing that language planning for minoritized languages has to anticipate the potential for shift. So why does it matter? Why should we try to nurture, try to preserve yeah, what, languages? What is the value of, of the linguistic Well, there's diversity. a value in all, all language, in all languages. Languages are precious parts of our culture. They're part of the cultural identity individual community and identity of the, of the communities. If a community shifts completely to English, of course they still have an identity, but they've, also, but they've lost part of their historical identity, part of their uniqueness. These languages are also vehicles of culture. 
of literature, of song. This will be lost in part. Okay, literature is still there, but it's not accessible to the same extent that if you no longer speak the language, the communities lose contact with the past. It's also, these languages are, are valuable to the wider community, much beyond the current native speakers. So the Scottish Gaelic language, for example, is recognised as a very precious part of Scotland's cultural heritage, a part of Scotland's identity. For a long period, the Scottish Gaelic language was spoken over most, nearly all of the area geographically of Scotland. It was the majority language of Scotland. Gaelic language and its associated culture contributed to Scottish identity. And now, whereas historically, the kind of the majority Scots or English-speaking population oppressed the Gaelic language, they saw its speakers as barbaric. Now they count the value, its culture, its contribution to Scottish cultural identity. So it matters, its survival matters a lot to the Scottish nation. If you, as you probably have done, kind of drive north, when you get to the border, you'll see a big sign, colours of the Scottish flag, welcome to Scotland, far to Gahalba in Gaelic. So you won't hear Gaelic when you kind of step over the border. It's not traditionally spoken in that area, and you have to go quite some distance further north to the traditional community where it's spoken. But the fact that the Gaelic language is there, it shows how important it is to Scottish identity. It shows how the Gaelic presence on this sign adds a distinctiveness to Scottish culture. And this is all part, this is, it's part of our rich cultural diversity. Languages are a key aspect of this. So if we lose this, we, lo we, we lose something valuable, just like the loss of biodiversity is, is, is also tragic. And does this preservation of linguistic diversity come back around to conflict? So the, the, the idea of language shift seems to, to happen in a context of conflict. By preserving linguistic diversity, do you also potentially reduce conflict? Yes, I agree with both of those points. So one point as we should emphasize as historical social linguistics is that language shift shouldn't be seen as a kind of neutral, natural process. It typically arises as a result of, of conflict, political conflict, colonialism, oppression of other people, um, suppression of their culture, of their distinct identity. So we need to remember how the fact that languages are endangered today, in particular languages on our doorstep, they're endangered because of political conflict. So we, this is a kind of an important act of memory, understanding. Knowing this can reduce conflict, it can reduce negative perceptions towards language. A second, I think, more important way that understanding linguistic history, uh, which includes understanding the process of language shift can help reduce conflict, is that it promotes the, the positive aspects of linguistic diversity. It shows that you can have peaceful, say, harmonious coexistence of the more languages and cultures. We need to be aware of the historical dynamics, the historical dynamics which, uh, historical in the broader sense, not just that happened in the past, but which are happening today. So kind of, I would say history begins yesterday in that respect. So there is still, I think, a lot of work to be done to support to actually maintain linguistic diversity throughout the globe. And this is also connected with um, understanding conflict and trying to reduce conflict. Because 
the lack of action arises from power imbalances. This is associated with the exclusion of people who don't speak the official languages. So it's very much bound up with conflict and this is a very much a global issue. This is fascinating work and I thank you for sharing and it's clear that this uh, has very complex interactions between language and conflict, uh, possibilities for reducing conflict and doing so in, in uh, contexts all across the world. Thank you for sharing with us.